Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 6-7, Daddy's Gonna Kill Ralphie. Are all people children of God or just those who choose to follow him? Is there a difference between being transformed and transfigured? And is there a secret to avoiding sin? We've got answers to these questions and also a little bit of singing as we study 1 John chapter 3. Hello, everyone. It's good to be with you again as we journey through First uh, John. Uh, today is episode 7, and we're going to cover all of chapter 3. You know, throughout this letter, John shows himself to be uh, a pastor and father par excellence. He encourages, he redirects. Surely he's a shepherd. And Jesus said that it's the shepherd who diligently protects the sheep. It's the hireling who, when when trouble comes, runs away. Just this week, I was uh, meeting with a, a good friend of mine who's a pastor and, and oversees uh, much of his denomination. And we were talking a little bit about the nature of pastoring right now. And in his role, he said that he sees too many pastors who are out there, not because of a specific call, but but as a vocation. Now, this doesn't make them bad. It just doesn't put them in the right place. John is writing to his various church communities who are in both pain and confusion. They're hurting, and he's facing this head on. I think we have our first application here. You know, all families from time to time have problems. Healthy families talk about them. The same is true in any church or even any organization. It's only dysfunctional when when we sweep everything under the carpet. And John clearly shows us this is not the case. Now, this chapter 3 illustrates how skillfully John uses different approaches, but with the same aim, to protect and to assure the flock. Let's begin with verse 1. This is God's children. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Now, it's interesting. Several translations uh, punctuate this first statement. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we could be called the children of God with an exclamation point. And I think that's very accurate because it's as though John, in the midst of writing about the various really heavy issues that the churches are in the midst of, he suddenly steps back and says, let's not lose our perspective. Let's not lose sight of this incredible gift of God. Let's keep coming back again and again to the wonder of who he is and who we are. It's easy when we get caught up in the in the day-to-day stuff, sometimes church stuff, we, we can, as Jesus said to the Ephesians in, in Revelation 2, we can lose our first love. Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we could be called the children of God. I, I remember the first few years 
after I came to Christ as a, as a young married man, 46 years ago now, but uh, we used to sing this as a song all the time. Behold what manner of love the Father has given. I won't torment you with the song, but I still remember it. I think I will always remember it. And it was a wonderful, rich, rich time. And that very song helped us remember the richness we were in. And John, from the beginning of this chapter, is reminding us to keep returning to our first love, our first joy, our first wonder. Now, one of the church fathers, uh, Bede, he, he said this, The grace of our Creator is so great that He has allowed us both to know Him and to love Him, and moreover, to love Him as children love a wonderful Father. It would be no small thing if we were able to love God in the way that a servant loves his master or a worker his employer, but loving God as a Father is greater still. You know, one of the things we need to understand, and it keeps coming back into abiding and into our relationship, a servant can only introduce a master to others. A son can introduce a father. And that's why it's so important, we keep coming back to this, that we carry a beautiful, beautiful gospel. Now, families have characteristics that identify them. I was just looking at some pictures yesterday. If the Stewart family gets together now, there's 24 of us. But we have characteristics that identify us. That The children bear a family resemblance. Now, a little later on, we'll see in verse 9 that, that John will express this resemblance and this kinetic uh, this connection with God in, in genetic terms. Because God is righteous, his children live righteously. Because God loves, his children are identified by their love. Because his mercy endures forever, his children are marked by their mercy toward others. Now, if you're paying close attention, you'll realize that this very first verse raises a very large question. Are all people children of God? Or just those who follow and believe in Christ Jesus? Colossians 3.11, Paul states that Christ is all and is in all. Uh, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 17, God made from one stock every race of humans to live on the whole face of the earth for we are his offsprings. At the incarnation, um, Christ united himself to all of humanity. Has he given us all? Is this blessing for all of us to be children of God? It seems that there are degrees of this, this reality actually being actualized. In, in John 1, verse 12, in the prologue of his gospel, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Those who identify with Christ by faith, who focus on him through prayer and worship and abiding, Christ is in them in a particular way. Of course, the very word in is just a metaphor for intimate relationship with him and, and therefore with the Trinity. So we've got a major issue right here. 
that that are we all called or just some uh, called children of God? Well, I, I want to almost directly quote from our dear friend Brad Jerzak because he wrote an article on this a few years ago. And as Brad expressed it, we see the Bible speaking of God's children in two distinct ways. All are Abba's children because he created us all in his image. Even in our rebellion, Abba, Father God, never disowns us. He never kicks us out of the family. His forgiveness follows us out the door if we are like the prodigal going down to a far country. His mercy pursues us all the days of our lives. Whether we're wasting our lives on some kind of hedonism like the younger son or we're continuing in a, in a religious slavery like the older son, in either case, we are all still God's beloved children. That's point one. But the second point is this. At the same time, some are recognized as Abba's children because they imitate their Abba in their love of Jesus Christ, in their grace and generosity to all, in their peacemaking, and thereby imitation of Abba Papa's character in their lives. The imitation is, of course, the work of transforming grace, which is made real as we willingly surrender our lives to Abba's love and follow his one unique son on the Jesus way. Well, let's go on to the next point in this verse. It's a lot here, isn't there, in one verse. He goes on to say, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We need to settle this, beloved. The world will not understand us. You have family members that will never understand you if they don't know the Lord. You've got co-workers. You've got bosses. You've got neighbors. You've got people will not understand. And we're not to react against them. Instead, be at peace with all people, Romans 12, 18. Do not expect to be understood or accepted. You'll just open yourself up to disappointment. Jesus made this point emphatically again and again in his teaching. Let's move on to verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed, but we do know this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. I love this verse, especially over the last couple of months as I've been preparing this. I've parked on this verse in my own time of of just contemplation. I've parked on this verse again and again. Paul said that we will see through a glass darkly. And I'm responding here to... Uh, what we will be has not yet been revealed. Paul says, we will see through a glass darkly. We have hopes. We have guesses based on trying to understand what the scriptures say. But at the end of the day, we do not know for sure. 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. Now, what our bodies will be, our resurrected new bodies, will be as is part of the mystery. 
And John here says, we shall be like him. This is very similar to what Paul taught, Philippians 3.21. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Now, Jesus' resurrection body, we talked about this uh, in, in the Matthew series, it, it, in one sense, it was like his earthly body, but at the same time, it wasn't exactly like it. His, his resurrected body walked through walls. It had different appearances. It, there was instant coming and going. And, but they knew it was Jesus. Sometimes they thought, I think it's Jesus. So we don't know exactly. John says, we shall see him as he is. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Lately, Seeing Christ transfigures us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, a verse we've come to before in this series. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed, the actual word is transfigured, into the same image from glory to glory, This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? And all who have this hope uh, in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Well, this hope, what does he mean by hope? It's not, it's not wishing for something. It's not hope really in the, in the 21st century sense of the word. What we believe about the future, folks, affects how we live today. This is really important. And so John is emphasizing the truth of the transformational power of abiding in Christ. Hope is waiting for a certainty that is going to come. Now, now it's it's this grace of God that is at work, and, and this work of Christ purifies us, purifies us. I was just thinking again in the car yesterday, driving home from the office about, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And yes, some of that has to do with with just those deep experiences of contemplation. But I think when our hearts are purified, we begin to see Christ everywhere, in people, in situations, even in creation. But the point here is that his work of grace in us changes us. It purifies our motives, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions. Christ becomes bigger and more glorious and more mysterious. He is both transcendent, he's everywhere, and he's imminent. He's so close because we begin to see who he really is. And when we do that, I promise you, we begin to see who we really are. Verse 4, everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Well, the word there is anomia. And an anomia means this. It's, it's literally the condition of being without law. But, but that is because of either ignorance of the law or of willfully violating the law. It, it, it refers to contempt and violation of the law, wickedness. Lawlessness is way beyond a particular sinful action. It's about systemic, willful sinfulness. 
And this, this lawlessness is connected to, we talked about darkness last week, the, the, the realm that is influenced by the powers that be. So John's not talking about random individual sinful acts, but an attitude that resents God's commands. It's this that John calls lawlessness. But he's connecting individual acts, and he's saying, if you keep on those, you you are stepping more and more into the realm of lawlessness, the realm of darkness. And so there's a warning here. Verse 5, you know that he, Christ, was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. We talked about Christos Victor. If you're curious, you can look on the last, oh, I'd say four or five episodes of Matthew. We really talked a lot about what took place at the cross. And so I won't repeat all of that now. But at the cross, the term Christos Victor refers to Christ defeating the power of of sin, sickness, and death. But he defeated the power of sin. What does that mean? He empowered us and enabled us to change our orientation away from lawlessness. Verse 6, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Because there's no sin in Jesus, we If we abide and remain in him, we can't continue a lifestyle of sin. Abiding leads to a whole new way of thinking, of feeling, a whole new kind of spiritual sensitivity. This is a new orientation of our lives and our hearts toward Christ. John, therefore, is saying that anyone who continues in a sinful lifestyle, lawlessness, anomia, It indicates that they never really did know him. They knew about him, as we talked about last week or two weeks ago, but they never knew him, actually. Just like what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 23, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice anomia, lawlessness. If we're going to live pure in heart, if we're going to... to follow him, then we need our eyes, our hearts, our lives focused on Christ. Frankly, beloved, this is why we need in our churches Christ-centered teaching. I don't mean talking about how Christ can, what he can do for me, how he can make me happier and more successful. No, that's me-centered. Christ-centered teaching that we learn the unsearchable riches of this wonderful Christ. I believe that is a huge shift that is required in our worship, in our preaching, in our prayer as we gather together. Verses 7 to 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Note that word, everyone. Everyone who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born of God do not sin because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin because they have been born of God. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God 
nor are those who do not love a brother or sister. Now, John is addressing again the issue of deceit. Remember the foundation, the background is the cessationists have come in and said, we have truth, you don't have the right truth, they've brought this division. And remember, last week, we, two weeks ago, we learned Antichrist is, is uh, those that deceive. So in this passage, John gives us a very, very stark, clear divide. Righteousness versus sinning. Christ versus the devil. There's no neutral ground for John. It's interesting that John says everyone is righteous who does right. So we're back to the question of verse 1. Every Christian is righteous, or whenever anyone does right, they are righteous. I've been thinking a lot about that this this week, too. There's a term common grace, and it means the, the universal, undeserved goodness of God toward sinners, toward all of creation. Now, common grace has a power to it. It restrains evil. It confers goodness on mankind as a whole, reflecting God's attributes of goodness, mercy, and justice. Everyone who does what is right is righteous. I think perhaps what John's getting at is this. When anyone, Christ follower or not, when anyone does what is right, they are two things are happening. They're responding to this common grace, this life flow. And secondly, when they do right, whether they know it or not, they're moving in rhythm with God. Let's go on. Verse 8. Everyone who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The first point here, that the devil is sinning from the beginning. That word again, arche. From the foundation of creation. He didn't just start, from the very foundation. Evil has been influencing and, and pushing us toward rebellion. And in, in, until Christ comes back, this is the reality of all creation, that the enemy has, is influencing and pressing creation in that direction. Paul says death reigns, that's how he puts it. Now, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. One, as I just said, at the cross, Christus Victor. But there's also a very practical uh, application to this that actually I've been teaching for a long time, more than 20 years, that when we enter into the activity of the kingdom of God, we are tangibly destroying Satan's work. Every time we pray for someone and they're healed or someone set free of demonic oppression, every every healing or uh, set free is is pushing back the kingdom of darkness. We're in a frontline war. So this is also how Jesus came and continues to come to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, those who've been born of God do not sin because God's seed abides in them. 
They cannot sin because they have been born of God. Now, John here is alluding clearly to his own gospel, chapter 3, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born from above, or some translations, born again. This, this is the second of ten times in this letter that John refers to being born of God. It's interesting. He never identifies or even discusses what is the process of being born of God. How are we born of God? He doesn't touch it. What he's interested in is focusing on something much more practical. What is the behavior of one who is born of God, born from above? And he identifies several through this letter. They do right. They do not sin. They love one another. They believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and they overcome the world. Second thing to notice in this verse, and I alluded to it earlier, is that the New Testament uses the word seed to refer to a person's descendants, uh, especially Abraham's physical descendants, but also metaphorically Abraham's spiritual descendants. Uh, Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham. You can look in Galatians 3 if you want to look at this whole issue. Now, uh, one wonderful theologian, Raymond Brown, put it this way, the ability not to sin is guaranteed by the presence of God's seed in us. This seed is either his power or the spirit of adoption, which cannot sin. One of the early church fathers, Severus, he said it this way, What is this seed of God which dwells in believers? What else but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by which we've been born again? And this presence never leaves us. Relates to what we talked about last week, that where John told them, you, you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and you will always have it. You see, here's how I think it works. If we sin... The Holy Spirit breathes upon our conscience. And he usually keeps breathing until we respond. And it leads us to repentance. That's why John said, you cannot sin. That's because of the Holy Spirit in you and I. It's impossible to sin and remain unaffected or unmoved. To continually deny the Holy Spirit's work of conviction and righteousness is, is a very dangerous place for our hearts to be. There's a gradual hardening and hardening. As a man once said to me with tears in his eyes, he was one of my employers, as I told him something that the Lord had said to me, and he says, well, then you better do it, because when God speaks to you, I had no idea he had a history with the Lord. When God speaks to you, if you ignore him, there's, his voice gets softer and softer and softer. And one day, and now there's tears in his office. You can't hear him anymore. Paul warned of this uh, in 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. This is what John's talking about. 
A third point here is that a key to understanding this whole passage is to go back to that word of anomia, lawlessness. John intentionally writes of doing right and committing sin in the present tense. Not something we did, but in the present tense. This suggests that he's, he's not talking about anomia, a habitual lifestyle of sin, rather as something that is, that is in progress. It's not a complete action. It's a passing action. It's occasional rather than continual. So what sin is not anomia? Because otherwise we could say, oh, well, that's, that's not lawlessness. That's just passing. What? <laughs> we need to be very careful. So what sin is not? John already told us, chapter 1, verse 9. It is the sin that has been confessed and he has faithfully cleansed us of all its unrighteousness. It is the anomia sin that leads to death, not the confessed and repented sin. Believers may sin, but they will agree with God that their sin is sin. It's like David in in Psalm 51. I've Uh, against you and you alone have I sinned, O God. Only acknowledged sin as sin and then turned away from is cleansed. Not, well, that's just the way I am or I'm working on that or that's a bad... You can't call sin by any other name and, and have it cleansed. So, this is an issue that we talked about a little bit in chapter 2, and it pops up all the way through of, the, of this whole thing of, of sin and no sin. And, and we've, we've already looked at it somewhat, and we're going to go a little deeper right now. What is going on here? Well, one of the great church fathers, Maximus, said this, If someone who is born of God does not sin... How is it that we who have been born of water and the Spirit and thus of God do in fact commit sins? The answer is that born of God has two different meanings. According to the first of these, God has given the grace of sonship with all power to those who've been born again. And according to the second, the God who has thus given birth is working in us to bring us to perfection. By faith, we are born again in principle, but God still has to get to work on us. I love that. Still has to get to work on us in order to refashion us according to his likeness. St. Augustine gave clear, simple, and powerful advice on this issue of sin. How can we avoid sin? By keeping the commandment of Christ. And what is that commandment? It is that we should love. Love is sin undone. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Actually, I misquoted the last part. Love and sin is undone. Same idea, but I want to get the quote accurate. Isn't that powerful? That's that's worth thinking about, isn't it? He says, just love. And the power of sin is undone. Verse 10. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God, uh, nor are those who do not love a brother or sister. Jesus has already said, by their fruit you shall know them. Here John is simply reflecting that clear teaching he'd received from Jesus 60 years earlier. So John presents in this verse two defining issues. 
righteousness, and love. Now, I want to try to express something that, for me, it, it kind of comes into focus, and then i got to get a hold of it again. You know, we can, our hearts can, can almost hide behind external standards of righteousness and holiness, and yet fail to authentically love. So we can, we can act righteously, we can, we can uh, do holy things, and yet, if we fail to love, isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? This is one of the great dangers, by the way, of, of religious community. It's another reason why I think it's very healthy for us to be going out into the world God gives us. And, and yes, bring them in. But, but we need to not just live within the bubble of our particular religious community. Because we can find the unspoken standards of righteousness and holiness and feel we're good and yet not be loving people within that. John's saying that our lives express our paternity, that we are either God's seed, back to verse 9, or we are children of Satan. He is speaking in the strongest possible terms to make sure he gets through to them. Well, let's shift to the second great theme of this chapter, love one another. Verse 11, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteousness. So John is circling back. Remember, we've talked about this circling or spiraling. He's going back again to an earlier theme, love for one another. And he talks about this six different times in this letter. This is the second theme in this chapter. And John is reminding the communities that he cares for that from the beginning, their foundation is love for one another. And also, not only is that their foundation, it's what marks them. It's what sets them aside. This is more than anything else that should mark our fellowship. More than, oh, we've got great worship, which is fine to have. We've got great preaching, which is fine to have. We've got lots of great programs. Those are all fine. But our foundation, more than anything else, what should mark us is love. And this is what we must guard and cherish more than anything else in our midst. And if we really got a hold of that, what congregation wouldn't find some adjustment? That's what John is stressing. Now, he continues with this multi-layered message. Again, he uses the term from the beginning. We've talked about RK. Both from the beginning of John's being with them and what Jesus taught John, he now teaches them. From the source, the origin, the first place of everything. Remember, that's all of what that word RK or beginning means. He's saying there's more of a cosmic meaning here. He's saying that, that love, which is expressed to the neighbors, love is at the very foundation of all the cosmos. Now, why is he stressing this? Because the cessationists have tried to sow division, mistrust, 
discourse. Division is opposite to loving one another. And that's hard medicine for us sometimes, but it is the truth. And then he gives the example from Genesis. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The story of Cain is, among other things, it's about hidden hatred, hidden jealousy. And and here, John is saying that we can see how those who refuse to do what is right, anemia, hate those who do what is right. John is saying that the cessationists have taken the way of Cain. The late but great writer Michael Green said this, Cain stands for the cynical, materialistic character who defies God and despises man. He is devoid of both love and faith. Just like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, John is digging down deeper, focusing on hidden motives. And then verse 13, Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. John's now associating the cessationists with the world. They are Antichrist, who, as he said in chapter 2, they went out from among us. None of them belong to us. Now, the world, John uses cosmos, uh, the world, 23 times in this letter. That's a lot. He means by this, the world is the people who are opposed to God and to the believers. Folks, remember, as I told you in the introduction several weeks ago, it is most helpful to read this letter of 1 John as a commentary and a companion to the Gospel of John. Here's an example. In the Upper Room Discourse, that's that's, uh, John 14 to 16, Jesus teaches the disciples uh, on their need to love one another. Two examples, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Verse 17, I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. But here's what's interesting. This is followed immediately with the warning that they would be hated by the world. Immediately, it goes from one right into the other. If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own because you do not belong to the world. Uh, But I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus and John are both being very practical. The believers will need to stick together. They need to support each other. They need to love each other in order to face the hostility that inevitably comes from the world. It's interesting, in uh, verse 1, John says the world does not know us. Now, he says, it hates us. Remember we talked about amplification as a a method of rhetoric that that he says the same thing again and again but stronger and it's, it's a way to just make the point go deeply. Now he says, don't be surprised. Expect it so you're not hurt or angered. Folks, I want to say this to us. I think it is so important in this time of of just conflict and and strife and 
And sadly, there's, it's touched the church, the world. Folks, do not fall into a persecution complex that you're surprised that the world hates you and speaks badly of you. Don't fall into a persecution complex. Why do I say that? Because I see it all over the place. I see it in media. I see it in writing. I listened to a message once about, about persecution and why our, our society persecutes us. And the examples, I just didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Because we deal with wonderful partners, some of whom you've met through this podcast, where they have people being killed and their homes being burned to the ground, etc. That's persecution. Somebody not being nice to you is not persecution. So please be careful. We don't fall into a persecution complex. And how do we do it? We expect and understand that the world will not only not understand us, they won't even like us. Verse 14 and 15, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. The language here is really emphatic. The verse starts, we know that we have passed. But really, in the grammar, it's, but we know. John is drawing a strong contrast between the church and the world and therefore the cessationists. He says, we're passing from death to life. What does John mean by these two terms? What does he mean by death and by life? He's saying it's not a future event. It's not what happens when you stop breathing. What he's referring to is the state in which the the fall, the original fall, has put all of creation in, which means all of us in. And a failure to love characterizes being in this realm. It's equivalent to being in darkness, as I said earlier. In his gospel, John says that after taking the bread from Jesus in the upper room, he says, Judas went out, and he adds this detail, and it was night. Why did he add that detail? Because it was to show that uh, Judas was leaving the source of light, which is Jesus, and was choosing instead to go out into the realm of darkness. That's what he's talking about. And life What's he mean by life? This whole verse is a very close parallel to John's gospel, 524. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Jesus and John, when they talk about life, they're talking about eternal life. John uses this term, by the way, 23 times. And here's some of the ways he uses it here. Um, Eternal life is promised to those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's 225. Uh, Eternal life is found in Christ the Son, 511. That he was with the Father from the beginning and appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. That those who have the Son have eternal life. Having eternal life is not just everlasting life, but is having the Son both now and and forever. You see, he's addressing something completely new. 
a new community built on a new life source. The power of love within a community. When a community lives out of this life source, they're tasting heaven now. And that's what makes it attractive. By the way, if you are, maybe you are responsible for leading a church or a house church or a home group. If you want it to grow, you don't need better strategies. You don't need more effort. You need simply to be a community of love. People are made. They can't resist being drawn to such a community. So John presents a clear choice. What's it going to be? Life or death? It's like what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, he's speaking to Israel, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Clearly, that's John's message. To not love is to not pass from life to death. Now, he does mean something eternal, but he also means a moment-by-moment choice. Right now, I'm faced with a choice with this person, with this situation. Will I draw from the living water that Jesus promised or not? Light or darkness? Life or death? I've told you before that for John, hate is the equivalent of murder. And he learned this from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Uh, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder, but if you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. It's the heart issue. Now, you're getting several church fathers today, but John Cassian, who lived uh, in the second half of the fourth century and the early fifth century, around the time of Augustine, he had much to say about this passage. If then we wish to receive the Lord's blessing, we should restrain not only the outward expression of anger, but also angry thoughts. More beneficial than controlling our tongue is a moment, uh, in a moment of anger and refraining from angry words is purifying our heart from rancor and not harboring malicious thoughts against our brethren. The gospel teaches us to cut off the roots of our sin and not merely their fruit. When we have dug the root of anger out of our heart, we will no longer act with hatred or envy. The blood of a man who has been slain by the sword can be seen by men, but the blood shed by the hatred in the mind is seen by God. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? The Lord's intention is that we should remove the root of anger, its spark, so to speak in whatever way we can and not keep even a single pretext for anger in our hearts. Now, I I was reading uh, a wonderful new biography by John Meacham, one of my favorite American historians, uh, a biography on John Lewis. And it started in about 1957 and went uh, till uh, the Edmund Pettus Bridge and Selma and, and where the first time all of America saw what was going on and it, and it led to new legislation. But 
that's just to tell you who John Lewis was. But I was so struck because he said that they and all of those with Dr. King in, in this uh, resistance, nonviolent resistance movement, took 18 months of intensive training, training where they were spit at, where they were beaten, where uh, hot coffee was poured over them, all the things they would encounter at the lunch counters and, and everywhere else. And he said, and the goal was, and we weren't there until it happened, that, that we went beyond controlling our anger to feeling no anger at all. Man, I read that three weeks ago, and I've been thinking about it ever since. That is exactly what Cassian is talking about. It's hard work, but it's really doable. Verses 16 to 18, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? Little children, let us not love, let us love not in word or speech, but in deed and truth. So the first point here is laying down our lives. And John is quoting directly, of course, from Jesus in John 15, 13, no one has greater love than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Now, some may be called to do this in an ultimate sense. Um, some of the countries that we work in, that's a reality. But certainly, John addressing the, the communities the churches at the end of the first century, this was continually the case among them. To, so some may be called to literally lay down their lives for the brethren. But John doesn't stop here. If it was there, we'd kind of be comfortable. We'd get a good feeling, oh, yes, Lord. But he gets on to this being very, very practical. Now, you see here again that if anyone sees a brother, so once again... We see uh, John has shifted, as we talked about last week, has expanded love your neighbor to love your family. Instead of who is my neighbor, now all are family. Now, folks, we've all received goods from the world and its system. He's saying now you've got to use those goods to help needy brothers. St. Augustine said this, if you're not able to die for your brother, at least show him your ability to give him of your goods. Let love be stirring your inmost heart to do it, not for display, but out of the very marrow of compassion, thinking only of the brother and his need. Is this not exactly what the book of Acts tells us the early church life was? This is what we're called to, the sharing. If we don't respond to others' needs, then it raises the question, deep down, at our core, have we truly passed from death to life? Abiding in love always has practical outworking. The classic passage in James chapter 2 Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day and stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? 
John doesn't even let us off the hook of saying, well, this is just for a brother, i.e. someone in your church, because he's already taken us on that journey. We're all family. And this, I am so sorry to say, is this failure is, is endemic in the 21st century Western church. Did you know that 68% of Christians say that we should not house refugees? By the way, that compares with all other Americans who instead of 68%, only 43% of them say that, which is bad enough. 59 times Jesus said, take care of the refugees, of the aliens, of the resident aliens. Take care of them because you too were an alien. I'm going to say it one more time because it's rather shocking. 68% of Christians say we shouldn't house them. Here's another one. Evangelicals are more than twice as likely to say that the poor are poor because of their own lack of effort. More than twice as likely as the non-Christians. So this issue that John raises is very real. It is not theoretical. It's not theoretical in my life. How do I deal with this in taking care of the poor and meeting needs? And I do. Imperfectly, absolutely. But, but it's, it can't be a blind spot. Once you see it, you see it. You know, it was St. Ignatius who said any church that does not take care of the poor is guilty of heresy. That's St. Ignatius, one of the earliest church fathers. Caesarea said this, Christ says when you had opportunities and you saw me in the person of the poor, you were blind. Now, I believe that if we follow John on his transition from neighbor to family, it will change our hearts. It will open our eyes to see the invisible, the ones that we haven't seen so far. So verse 18, John gives a crystal clear summary of this. It's not your words of good intention that matter. It's your actions. St. Hilary originated the saying, actions speak louder than words. Now, verses 19 to 22, and by this we know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God and we receive from him whatever we ask because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. John goes back to the theme of telling them that they they know the truth. And he knows that they are battling on this issue right now. They're battling uncertainty, insecurity, confusion, because the cessationists have brought that in. But he also knows that Christ and the Holy Spirit will bring assurance to them, will bring peace to them. So let's start at verse 20 again, because this is really important. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts. Okay, we are of the truth and will reassure our hearts. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God. The enemy assaults our emotions at different times, all of us. He tries to bring uncertainty. He tries to bring this false sense of guilt. 
Um, he brings a lack of confidence, even about our salvation. You know, as decades of being a pastor, I've had so many people come to see me that they're unsure of their salvation. Why? Because the enemy's been lying to them. So it's this is the way the enemy uses our own thoughts and our own emotions against us. Paul talks about those with a weak conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, 7, Since we have become so accustomed to idols until now, um, uh, some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. When we've lost our confidence in ourselves, as Paul calls it, a weak conscience, and we've lost confidence that we are truly followers of the Jesus way. When we're honest about our inconsistencies and our failures, we need to not put our confidence in anywhere except God, because he never wavers. And because of that, we can have great confidence in him. You know, I know this is true. Deep down, many of us sometimes fear that our sin has angered God, that he's disappointed in us. And you, some of you have heard me say in different times, God is never angry with you. He's never disappointed with you. But you know, even as I read various commentaries and listened to different theologians, I could tell some of them took this as God knows everything. He even knows the worst stuff you did. So it's really important to repent and come clean. And others, that we can just lean into him, confidence in his love. Here's what it comes down to. Here is the fundamental shift that I believe the church needs, you need, I need. Sin is not something that needs to be punished. It needs to be healed. Let me say it again. Sin does not need to be punished. It needs to be healed. When we get this, we read the scriptures differently. We see Jesus differently. We see one another differently. And this frees us from fear. And it frees us from even that kind of subtle distancing ourselves from the Father. I love what St. Augustine famously said, speaking of God, he is closer to me than I am to myself. Moving on, beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God and we receive from him whatever we ask because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. Jesus promised us this. The writer in Hebrews said we can approach boldly the throne of grace. This is why we have what First Peter calls a living hope. It's not a positive wish. It's an assurance. It's an assurance. And this, verse 23, is his commandment that we should believe in the name of the Lord, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Folks, perhaps this is the clearest statement of God's command in all of John's letter, maybe in all of his writing. It's crystal clear. This is his commandment. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Love one another. By the way, the word for believe is not just mental assent. If you believe in your heart, okay, I believe. The Greek word goes much deeper. 
Pustuyu is, is the word, and it means to place our trust, our faith in him, and only in him, and all that he is, the divine son, the incarnate God, the sinless human, the Savior. John is calling us to trust all of Jesus in every aspect and every part of our life. And then the second part of the commandment is love for one another, which is the main theme of today's talk. Faith toward the triune God and love for people sum up the entire Christian life. These are the foundations of our assurance before God because they are the evidence of his work in our lives. These are God's testimony that's in us. Fully trust leaning into him, clinging to him, our lives centered in him, and loving others. These are the testimony we live with. So John's given us two tests. The first is, and he gives them in a positive way, to tell these cessationists, or these folks who have been affected by the cessationists, say, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Check off these two things. First, do you clearly believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? This is the doctrinal test. They go, yeah. Second, there's got to be active love for one another. This is the moral test. Final verse. All who obey his commandments abide in him. There's that word we spent so much time on, and and last week we had Susan sharing with us. And uh, all who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he's given us. This, by the way, is the first direct reference to the Holy Spirit in John's letter. Uh, He has spoken of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian letter. In fact, it's a Trinitarian chapter. Father, verse 1, Son, verse 8, and now Holy Spirit, verse 24. John's telling us there's a kind of a reciprocity between obeying and abiding. Obedience brings us into a closer abiding relationship, and that abiding life makes us more sensitive and empowered to be obedient. The Holy Spirit is the token of our inheritance. Ephesians 1.14 tells us that. So if, if your hearts try to condemn you, remember and thank him for his work in your life by what you believe and how you're living. So for John, it's clear. Living in our belovedness will transform us, will transfigure us, and will always have the tangible outcome of seeing others as beloved. Beyond neighbors, we now see and love family. Love for one another. This is what Jesus called the fruit that remains. God bless you. Tim's going to join me in a moment, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the things from today. Now what? The gospel's meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. 
Okay, I have questions for you today, but uh, before we get into our questions, I just wanted to remind people that Impact Nations is back in the journey of compassion business. Uh, you may have heard we recently wrapped up our journey of compassion to Uganda, and we are already well on our way of putting together our next journey of compassion to the Philippines. We're heading to the Phils in May, uh, May 14th to 26th of 2023, and we'd like for you to be there. In fact, I'm going. Uh, I'm going to be taking my wife and my three children with me as well, and we would love to see you on that team. Uh, during this journey, we are going to see churches planted. We're going to see the hungry fed. We're going to see people get access to clean water. Uh, and we know that all these things are going to happen because they're already happening, but we want to have you participate as well. Our partners have been seeing many, many people come to Christ and see people get plugged into new churches. We're establishing new house churches in the Philippines, um, but we believe there's going to be a huge acceleration of that during our time together next May. So, uh, you know, our team in Uganda, they just got back. We sent out an email, uh, whoops, last week um, with some statistics about what happened in Uganda, and we, we said there was 1,000 people that got saved. Uh, and then one of our leaders uh, from the journey said, actually, you got that wrong. It was 2,500 people. So a uh, <laughs> little bit of a correction there. That's 2,500 people that met Christ as a direct result of that journey of compassion. So uh, we know that that's going to happen again in the Philippines. And God's going to use you to bring salvation to people, to introduce people to a whole new life in Christ. Um, one of the things we're going to be doing on this journey that's brand new is building some uh, clean water stations. You've heard us say that the Philippines, uh, this portion of the Philippines, is routinely hit by very violent typhoons. Uh, and when the typhoon comes, not only does it knock down homes and flood the area and stuff, but those floods actually contaminate the water table. And for, for weeks and sometimes even months afterwards, people are drinking highly contaminated water that makes them really sick. Um, we're going to be creating these water filter stations with big tanks with many, many filters attached to them at a co local community center so that when that happens, people from all around will be able to come and get access to clean, safe drinking water. And our team is already working with local mayors and, and community leaders to set, uh, set up the right place for that. So uh, we're going to need your help building those things. We're also going to be going to some really remote villages, traveling by boat up the river uh, into the jungle. Uh, the Philippines is an absolutely beautiful country. I, I lived there. My wife and I lived there for three and a half years. Uh, two of our kids were born there. Um, and I can tell you, it is a, a beautiful country full of beautiful people. And these are folks that are waiting for us to come and introduce them to Jesus. They just don't know it yet. So please be a part of that team. Uh, if you'd like, you can set up your own fundraiser. Um, Finances can be an issue sometimes. These trips can be expensive, but uh, I believe that there are people in your life who would like to help you financially to get there and really become a part of your team to to help you go and bring the gospel to the poor in the Philippines. Uh, we set up a fundraiser for ourselves. It's going really well. It's super easy to do. If you want to learn about that, you can just write us at info at impactnations.com and we'll walk you through the steps to set up that fundraiser. But um, please join us. Philippines, May 14th to 26th. You can learn all about the journey and register today at impactnations.com slash philippinesjoc. Okay. I have a couple questions for you just on uh, something that you said quite, quite early on mm -hmm. uh, as you were speaking today. One of them, you talked about uh, vocational pastors and yeah. um, – I wanted to dig into that a little bit because I know actually a lot of uh, our listeners are pastors uh, or uh, are involved in vocational ministry in one way or another. And I, I wondered, you were a pastor for a long time. Mm -hmm. How did you know you were called to it uh, versus, uh, you know, just 
this would be a good thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know that our system, I had a great talk with a good friend of mine yesterday who, mm. as I said, um, you know, gives leadership even at a national level. And uh, we agreed our system, the way we build church in the corporate structure mm-hmm. is you're always working toward upward mobility, right? Even yeah. within the church. Sure. Yeah. And then if you get on staff, maybe you're the children's pastor, then you're the youth pastor, and then maybe you're the associate pastor, yeah. and then ding, ding. <laughs> so it's not bad people. It's a bad system. Mm. Uh, one of the, the question was, how did I know? Um, I, I felt like the Lord spoke to me repeatedly. It was mm-hmm. for a few years. And uh, he spoke to me in ways we've talked about here through the scripture, through others, mm-hmm. um, and uh, prophetic words. So it, it settled into my heart. I knew that I knew. Yeah. And, uh, and so we stepped out, right? I've, I've shared that last week, I think. You know, mm-hmm. We moved 3,000 miles away, and that was the beginning of a whole new thing. Uh, the other problem, and again, this comes, comes out of the discussion I had yesterday with my friend, is that he oversaw their seminary for a few years. And he had, unfortunately, when he'd ask people, how do you know they're called, they wouldn't know. But an off, uh, you know, lots of people did know, but those who didn't. And they'd often say, well, my pastor said I'd make a good pastor. Hmm. So there's other people telling you, you should do this. Right. Have you ever told somebody you shouldn't do this? Have you ever counseled somebody away from pastoring? Well, generally, when I had a, that church planting program, because mm-hmm. you know, we were planting a lot of churches, my opening message was, if there's anything else you can possibly do, do it. That was <laughs> yeah. the title of my opening message. That's so good. does that count? Yeah. Did, did you find that your second message had a lower attendance? Way, <laughs> way lower. <laughs> it worked. Um. All right. Second thing, you uh, you talked about beyond being transformed, being transfigured, and I wonder if we could spend just a couple of minutes if you could tell us in your mind when you say it's beyond transformed but transfigured. What's the difference between being transformed mm. and being transfigured? Great. Transformation is, uh, you know, it's very wonderful. It's being, it's changing. Uh, I think of uh, Romans eight twenty nine uh, being uh, conformed or transformed mm-hmm. to his image. Transfigure is a, is more supernatural. I think that there's so, there's just this supernatural work that happens in us. Not that the other isn't supernatural, mm-hmm. but but again we're we're back to that 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 supernatural realm that many of us are uncomfortable with, where suddenly just through beholding him through being time, all these things we talk about week after week, there's something that just starts to change and it totally surprises you and you're not even working on it. And it's and it's because you're not looking at what's changing, you're just mm-hmm. watching him. Mm, that's good. Yeah, okay. Uh, you talked a little bit about sin uh, not being something that needs to be punished, but rather it's a disease that needs to be healed. And... I suspect that for many people, that's a pretty seismic shift. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think in the evangelical world, we have over time shifted our thinking to uh, to sin being uh, not even a condition, but a series of things that you are doing wrong to break commandments. Uh, Which, in one sense, I think is a 
ironically, kind of a small definition of, of what it is. Uh, we've talked on this podcast a lot about sin being the powers of darkness, the powers that be. Um, what, what happens when you begin to shift your thinking between the two? Why is that so important for, for us to really begin to understand sin in a different way than, than perhaps, I was going to say the traditional understanding, but I think it's not the orthodox understanding necessarily, no, it, but it, recent the, history. The understanding. reform understanding, yeah. evangelical understanding. Yeah, it's a huge question, and I'd love to get into it a little more sometime and include it. How did that happen? How did yeah, that's, I'd, I'd love to get that too. We'll, yeah. we'll touch on that for a moment. Uh, I think that if we can understand that sin came and infected the world, mm-hmm. that we see it as this force, etc., and that that what it does right? It, it steals, kills, and destroys. Yeah. That, that therefore sin is something that Christ came to heal. That's why Christ's victory took it all, to heal. Yeah. When we see, we see God, we see the work of the cross as healing rather than punitive, mm-hmm. uh, we're, first of all, in a much longer and I think truer tradition, yeah. um, theologically. But second of all, it changes our whole view of who God is and how we relate to him. Mm. If I think that sin is something I need to be punished for, um, I automatically distance myself. You just It's the only rational thing to do. If, you, if it's punishment, mm-hmm. you're not going whoopee, right? Uh, but if it's healing, oh, Here's how I'm that that let's put it in a simple term. Oh, my back's going to get healed. All this pain's going to go away or oh, the medicine that's going to take my terrible fever away. Mm-hmm. Give it to me. Whereas if wait till your father comes home, mm. we're not looking for that. And that affects the way we see God. Mm. It affects the way I see what you do wrong. I saw what you did, the, the log in my own eye and the yeah. you know, speck in yours. But, but man, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. God's going to deal with that in yeah. your life. How many times have we heard that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it all comes out of this fundamental, I believe, wrong understanding about mm-hmm. sin. It needs to be healed, not punished. Yeah. Which then also changes the way we relate to the world around us in terms of evangelism, because if if we're projecting, I mean, if we if we have received a gospel, if we are believing a gospel that says sin must be punished, uh, then we're almost inviting. You know, let's say you want to invite somebody to church, you're almost saying, "Come and get your punishment, like come get your licks," sort of a thing. And you're a sinner. That's your primary yeah, identity. Exactly. Yeah. You, you've been with me. In the nations. You've been mm. with me in villages, various yeah. countries, and cultures. Yeah. What is the universal response when, as I'm talking about this wonderful Jesus, and we get to John 10.10, 10, the thief it, it, comes yeah. to steal, kill, and destroy. It resonates no matter where you are in the world. And yeah. it's not, aren't you tired of being a sinner, mm-hmm. which is what it's it morphed That's, into. Yeah. Rather, oh, haven't you had enough of yeah. this, yeah. of what... what Sin has done to you. Haven't you had enough of the sickness? Mm. Jesus came to heal you. By the way, just briefly, because it's going to drive me crazy if I don't at least mention it, that that sin is needing to be punished came out of the judicial mindset. And uh, we talked a little bit about that 
sometime last season that at the, at the time of Calvin, what was going on in uh, in uh, northern uh, I don't say India, Europe, <laughs> uh, what was going on there was all the power structures were changing. All that you know, feudalism had just about wrapped up and. And and what we think of as firm borders now were not, and so their backup was to develop strong what the English call common law, strong judicial, uh, a legal based society, mm. and he just simply applied that. If we've got to have justice here, then of course God wants it's justice. Anthropomorphism at its worst, and yeah. and therefore. Sin needs to be punished, indeed. Just like stealing some somebody's coat, mm-hmm. rather than sin is a sickness and it needs to be healed. Yeah. This, uh, I, I don't have words to express how central, how core, yeah. that the and vital that understanding is. I, I'm going to say it one more time, if I may. Mm. Sin is not something that needs to be punished. It is something that needs to be healed, yeah. and that's why Jesus came. Uh, a metaphor, if you will. If if you are a fan of A Christmas Story, a marvelous Christmas movie, mm. <laughs> there is this moment. Uh, there's this moment in the movie where. Ralph, the main character. Uh, oh, loses, I'm in the wrong movie. I thought we loses, were Scrooge. No, that'd be a Christmas Carol. <laughs> <Yeah>. Christmas story. <laughs> uh, Ralph <laughs> loses his his mind and starts beating up the bully. Oh, and yeah. Some, Scott Farkas. Scott Farkas. Yellow, yellow eyes. eyes. I swear he had yellow eyes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and he's just pummeling this kid, and some bad words may have tumbled out of his mouth. And uh, he, he gets brought home, and... It's a just wait till your father gets home yeah. moment. And his younger brother <laughs> is hiding under the sink, crying. And his mother goes and opens the cupboard. What are you doing, Randy? And he's he's crying. He says, Daddy's going to kill Ralphie. And it is, I honestly think it's a helpful picture sometimes. Because if we if we really come at it as sin is something to be punished, and, and God's the one who's going to do the punishing, I think far too often we find that our faith puts us into the cupboard and has us sitting there weeping, wow. saying, God's going to punish me, God's going to punish my friends. And instead of us going out and saying, you're not going to believe when he gets home, there is so much forgiveness and everything is going to be better. Instead, we've got this cowering of, dad's coming home and everybody's in trouble. Do you mean to tell me then that when we have... Uh these terrible hurricanes and tornadoes, mm-hmm. it's not God that is, punishing America? <laughs> it is not. It is not. That and he yet, doesn't want to punish America. No. He wants to heal America. Absolutely. Because there's no doubt, sin is no less serious. No. It's just, because it's so destructive, Yeah. but it's it needs healing, yeah. not punishing. Yeah. We need to get on the operating table, not in the witness stand. Wow, that's very good. Is that the title of your new book? (laughs) There you go. We'll write a book. Uh, I think we'll wrap up there. Uh, We've been all over the place today, but it's been really, really good. Thank you. Uh, Looking forward to next week. Uh, I am uh, really blessed to see the parallels between that you're drawing between John's gospel and this letter as well. Mm. Uh, and I would, I'm looking forward to coming back to reading John again through this new light as well. So, uh, 
Thanks so much for being with us this week. We are here every Thursday at 6 p.m. on the YouTube uh, and on the Facebook. And if you like to listen to the audio, you're missing out on our fantastic outfits, but uh, that's okay. Uh, you can get your audio delivered directly to your device by hitting subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast catcher there. Uh, just look up Impact Nations Podcast and you will find us. Uh, leave us a review too. That's helpful. That way other people can discover us. Uh, we got people listening from all over the world. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to write to us, uh, if you want to just be mad about something we said, or if you want to help us uh, draw more parallels with other awesome movies, you can do that too. Just write to podcast at Impact <laughs> nations.com uh, we always love to hear from you thanks so much for being with us we'll see you again next week bye-bye god bless